So this is office hours. Yeah, just um, a place where we can pretend that students on a virtual program can have a brick and mortar experience. Uh, today I have Wesley Little here, who is my favorite EFT blogger. I have no idea how I came upon her, her blog, um, but I love it. I love how bite-sized it is. Um, so Wesley, I wanted to ask you first, I have two questions I really wanted to ask you. The first question is, how did you even begin to write this thing? Like you haven't been, been writing that long, have you? Uh, yes, yeah, I've had it just for a year. Okay. Yeah. So, um, two, two kind of ways I started writing it. One is there, there, when you, I smile when you say I'm your favorite EFT blogger, cause there's only one other that I know of. And she's, she's actually, Dickerson? no, no. Um, actually you should check out this blog cause she's amazing, but it's called heartbeats for therapists. Okay. Yeah. Um, and she's incredible, but she really only posts like every four to six months, one post, but her, be gold. they are <laughs> like legit. Every word she writes is solid gold. Um, so she's so incredible that like she, you, you, you would wait four months to get one of her posts. Um, and they're very, very thoughtfully done, but yeah, I mean, EFT is just, um, for anyone listening who doesn't know what that is, emotionally focused couples therapy founded by Dr. Sue Johnson. Um, it's just such a hard model to learn. And when I was in the midst of learning it, you know, I was trying everything to try to keep it in my head, flashcards and uh, study groups. And, and so I thought if I write down what I'm learning and I hold myself accountable with having to post once a week, um, then it will help cement that. And then maybe people will feel yeah. like they get something from it. No, that's a really good idea. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, so it started out really as just a way to cement my own learning. That's a great idea. I hadn't, like, I, like my brain's exploding at them. Okay, <laughs> the same thing. <laughs> I'm learning. That's brilliant. Okay. Well, and I mean, I think you you write fairly regularly, Jordan, um, and you blog fairly regularly. Um, I'm wondering what in particular is like blowing up in your mind at this moment. Well, yeah. So like I just finished this book called Peak, right? Which basically was the best book I've ever read um, because it's just about how people who are high level in their field get better at their field. And one mm -hmm. of the things that they do is they practice all the time. Mm -hmm. Right. They're constantly practicing, constantly tweaking, constantly looking for errors so that they can make small adjustments. Mm -hmm. What happens is over time, over a 10 year period, this guy is the guy who came up with the 10,000 hour rule, which mm -hmm. which he says is mislabeled because it's not about the time. Hmm. It's about the practice, the deliberate practice over time. Mm -hmm. And so over time, if you put in that much work, of course, your results are just going to be that much more powerful. Mm -hmm. and I'm always because therapy I think it's something that's very difficult to get deliberate practice in mm -hmm. and then to think about how do I refine what I'm doing but if you're journaling about it if you're writing it down I mean that's that's one way right of really yeah. cementing, cementing in these sort of concepts um, especially when they're so based in language yeah that's a good point yeah 
Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. Um, so yeah, I think the journaling um, is great. And then to me, supervision is the other way, um, which is so essential, I think. Yeah. yeah, I think supervision is something that I need to do eventually if I ever get back into the private practice world. Um, but the, I think the thing that's different about the blogging is when you're journaling or when I journal, I journal and then I write it, you know, I write it down and then I leave it alone. But when you're blogging, you have to constantly refine it in your, in your mind as well. And then refine yeah. it. Paper. Yep. That's so true. Really this distilling process of what is the essence of what I'm trying to convey. Yeah. That's an excellent point. Which is also what you're trying to convey to, to, to clients, I would assume. Yeah, I think that's such an excellent point, Jordan. And I think that part of why I wanted to write the blog is because I feel like a lot of the materials we're given in EFT are so brilliant, but they're written in very academic language. Mm -hmm. And I, I just don't think that um, we need to communicate that way. Like, I yeah. think we can, we can write in a way that's just very human and gets the point across, but isn't... Um, super academic and I think that's why I like what you write because I feel like it is very um, clear and it's also very actionable because it's one small part of this model mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. mean my favorite post that you wrote is uh, I think nailing step two where you talk about talk you know the trigger the emotion you know you go down I'm like mm -hmm. oh I must have skimmed past that a hundred times not knowing that sure. that's where I'm looking to hit those specific points Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, you know, what we all experience. Um, every time I learn something new about EFT, I think, oh, that's what they've been trying to tell me. And, you know, it's just that repetition. It's what we do for our clients, too. You know, we're, we're repeating things ad nauseum with the clients, and we have to learn that way also. Yeah. Um, who do you, who, who do you read, like, besides that lady who you have to send me her her uh, blog yeah yeah um i gosh i feel like i'm always taking in information that um help that i kind of use for therapy um so i reread all sue johnson's book sue johnson's book on trauma i think is amazing um every time i read that i learn eight billion more new things. Um, uh, Lori Brubacher just put out a new book, Stepping Into EFT, or, and I think, yeah, Stepping Into EFT, and it's great. It's definitely um, dense, and so I'm working my way through it, uh, but I read lots of books that aren't EFT to um, just help me understand the work even better, um, yeah. so, yeah. Yeah. I had one more really specific question, if you don't mind me digging yeah. in a little bit. Um, I had a student who I think is going to really enjoy this episode because um, we were talking about the distilling process. Mm -hmm. And that is something that I, um, I myself struggle with. And so I was hoping you could just give a basic overview of what that is. Mm -hmm. Then give me a few examples. Do you mean when you're distilling with a client to the point of um, having them do an enactment? Yeah. So what we were talking about last week was, um, you know, someone presents and they're talking about something and we were doing a role play. Mm -hmm. and the role play was a, was a young lady who we, were, who we called Sarah, 
mm-hmm. who was smoking and doing other drugs in a way that was problematic, right? Mm-hmm. And um, she said something like, yeah, I know that I shouldn't do it, but I just think about my old friends and, you know, I just really kind of wish that I was with them. So I go, I go. And then mm-hmm. they're there, they're all doing stuff. And then I do stuff. And I was like, that, mm-hmm. that makes sense, right? Like, of course that makes sense because they're your community. So there's this loneliness that's there when, when they aren't around. She's mm-hmm. like, yes, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Which led us to a conversation of how do you get people into the emotion? Because clients will often skip over mm-hmm. the emotion and go more to content. Sure, right? sure. So then yeah. use this drug and this is my drug of choice and you want, but you don't want all that detail necessarily. You want to stay with the emotion, with, with the loneliness that she's presenting with. Right, right. Um, so the question is more like, you know, if it's an individual client or not, how do you, how do you help the client, um, stay with and heighten their, the emotion? There we go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, such a tricky, such a tricky thing. Um, and so I think it's, um, a combination of, um, time and alliance Mm -hmm. in addition to what you're doing in the room. Um, so kind of what I'm about to walk through, I don't think is always best to do in like the first five sessions. Um, so in EFT. That's important to hear. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you know, it's it's a relationship. Um, so, um, you know, as a therapist, I think we know that so much of the, um, the fruitful part of the work is in the emotions. Mm-hmm. And so I think we can get really focused on getting to the emotion. But you know, that person sitting across from you, like they don't know if they can trust you and they don't, they might have been hurt by every relationship they've ever been in. Yeah. And so um, that, that time and alliance piece is um, so crucial. Um, so, you know, in EFT, it's really specifically laid out of when you go into the emotion and when you don't um, for that reason too. But so let's say you have a really good alliance with someone and let's say you've, you know, you've seen them for a couple months and you feel like there, there's a lot of solid ground. Um, so then the heightening of the emotion piece, um, Lori Brubacher would talk Can about. Slow yeah. down for a second. Mm-hmm. Sure. I think you said something that was really important, right? Okay, sure. That it might take a few months for that oh my God. to be built. It could take a year. <laughs> Wow. I mean, depending on how much trauma the person you're working with has had, like, you know, they, if truly, and this happens, if you are the only person they have a secure attachment with, if you're the only adult who is willing to admit when they're wrong, care about their feelings, you know, be reliable. Did you say admit when you're wrong? Yeah. I mean, you might be the only adult they've ever had admit when they are wrong. Yeah. Hmm. They might have yeah. heard their whole life that it's them. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that, uh, I think that it's important to like pause on that. It takes time because I think that, especially this being for students and me just thinking, I'm only three years out from my master's, like. I think that we're kind of inundated with we need to be brief therapists mm-hmm. uh, to the detriment of teaching us how to develop a relationship. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. um, at least that's been my experience so far. And a lot of my yeah. frustrations have come from trying to do therapy before like my client is sold on me. As yeah. Well. well, that, I think that's such a good point, Ryan. And I think that the, the urgency can come from within too. Like when I get anxious, when I see someone's in crisis or a couple's in crisis, man, like my system just floods the gas pedal and I just want to fix it and I want to go for it. And, you know, um, it's so natural to have that happen. And I think so much of the development of ourselves as therapists is learning how to slow down and not get hooked into that, um, current but it's 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 hard all the time for me it's it's a daily piece of work for me yeah, yeah. i think for me so, so ryan and i um we went to the to, through the same master's program and we're roommates uh not at the same he went through after me but we were roommates while i was in the program mm -hmm. um, so we have a long history and i think that initially i've had the same angst that he did you know of being 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 brief and I think that now on this side of it, I don't have as much of that angst. But one of the things that I have noticed is I'm not sure. I feel like there's this there's this thing that happens in therapy where you get like three or four, three or four sessions in, you're five sessions in, and um, you're kind of through all the, you know, get to know you sort of stuff. You, you're passed through the introductory sort of stuff and there's this plateau that at least i i hit and i'm not quite sure if like like what to do with that plateau and i think what you said hit me because it it gives space to say okay this is where you're building the relationship mm -hmm. and it might it might feel like the um um the middle part of of any journey right where the newness mm -hmm. kind of wears off mm -hmm. and you're in the day-to-day -day interaction of it you know what i mean and then eventually you'll get to something new if you keep chipping away at it yeah, yeah. i mean and i think you know for me it in in every session it's trying to really focus on the process you know the process between me and the client like are we stuck are we at a plateau are they are they staying confused? Some clients come in really confused. And if they stay confused, then we have to ask, like, does that confusion have a function? Is that confusion important to this somehow? Is it, is it protecting them somehow? And honestly, like, I, you know, my style is more interpersonal, so I'll bring that into the room and say, like, do you feel like we're plateaued? Yeah. You know, I'm kind of feeling stuck. Do you feel stuck? That kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I also like what you said about, um, and this is something that I have started doing, but I don't think a lot of my students do, which is just apologizing if you mess up about something. Oh my God. I feel Let like, me tell you. Yeah. Like so many, I don't know, like I would have never have done that six months ago. Mm. I would have never done, done that before the EFT stuff. Mm. Um, and now, yeah, I do it all the time. Oh, I, I think it's the most important thing that probably that I do. I mean, I hate it. I hate making mistakes. I hate the sessions I leave where I'm like, oh, I can tell that when I said that thing, I missed it or triggered them or whatever. Um, but 
when I come back and I say like, I'm so sorry, I really feel like I misstepped there. Um, you know, just like we teach, you know, we, what we want our clients to come away with is that it's not about perfection, it's about repair, yeah. right? And so that's what we model with them. Um, and we model that vulnerability. Yeah. Okay. So you were going into. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the heightening, the heightening. Okay. So Lori Brubacher thinks of, I don't know if she originated this or not, but it's in her training that you see the, um, a car with four doors open. Right. Okay. And so think of it as a car with four doors. And will I remember all the four doors? No, I won't. But, um, but there, but she basically uses it as like, these are the different avenues in. So one is just really reflecting and tracking very closely. So just like you were doing with Sarah, you know, you picked up on the loneliness, right? And so then it's reflecting and tracking like, oh, you feel lonely. What's that like? What's that remind you of? Um, and then sometimes I'll ask clients if that feels familiar. So I'll kind of go to the past. Um, is, that, is that a feeling you've had before? Oftentimes the, the kind of deep wells of pain with us, they've been there for a very long time. And then another way to heighten is to ask about body sensation. So do you feel that in your body? What's that like? Is it heavy? Does it feel like a wall around you? Does it feel like a pit in your stomach? And then as you're helping the client, really you're helping the client tolerate their own experience. Right. It's not so much about getting there, but about tolerating the experience of having the feelings as they increase the capacity to sit with it. Like sometimes, you know, clients will tear up and then they'll want to move really past, really quickly past that. And I always try to be super respectful and not tell them what to do. But I might say like, would it be okay just to, just to sit with that for a minute? Is it, is it, does it feel okay to just have that in your body? And so um, as the tolerance increases, I think the deepening into the feeling can increase too. Yeah. And I think naming the feeling, you know, for some clients, they might come in super cognitive and they might say, well, it feels like, you know, they never care about what I'm doing and it feels like they're always, you know, whatever. And so then I'm, I might just slowly try to get them to actually name the emotion. I think something that you're saying that you're not pinpointing is um, the speed of which you're yeah. doing all of this, right? Yeah. And, and, and I mean, like, I would imagine that if someone comes in and they say that, right? Well, it feels like they just don't really, you know, you say, you might say, you, you might slowly say, is it okay for us to sit with that just for a little while, right? Mm -hmm. And you're, you're trying to lengthen, just slow it down. Mm -hmm. um, is that is that awesome I... yeah yeah no you're totally right I mean that's so EFT and I'm sure all all other therapy you know it's not if like someone comes in and they're like I'm really frantic then the therapist isn't like oh my god like let's freak out like you know I mean we we definitely try to slow it down I think um you know matching affect works pretty well with anger but with the rest of the emotions i think it works a little bit better if we can slow down and try to um ground ground them with our voices 
Mm, sometimes with our voices yeah sometimes if a client's angry it can just piss them off more if i'm being like let's be like really calm um so i do um george Fowler, who's a great eft therapist um he, yeah, he did he did both of my trainings in it oh he's so amazing the externship yeah. core. i call him big big bicep george he's a super <laughs> hero so he talks a lot about matching affect with anger and yeah. meeting clients where they are with that it was, I think you'll enjoy this. It was really remarkable because I, I watched that video. He did a, an interview. With Annabelle? Yeah. And then I saw like a clip of Rebecca Jorgensen uh, with a couple. And I was like, ooh, she's not matching the anger. The lady kept getting like more and more just like, no. You know, and I was like, that's, but you know, it's Rebecca. And so I'm sure that they were fine. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. She's so amazing. Yeah, I think, and I think every, every therapist has their own style, even in EFT where we're trying to do something very, very specific, you know, with, mm -hmm. I mean, Rebecca Jorgensen is super tranquil, right? George Fowler has a lot of energy. Like, yeah. you know, they've, they've all got their own thing they're bringing in. Yeah. So are there other doors? I think that, yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely the, the repetition, the body sensation. Um, and I don't know if these are the Lori's four doors, but for me, it's the staying with the feeling and then wanting to understand, is that familiar? Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes I'll ask clients for an image, um, particularly in couples therapy. Like, does an image come to mind? Does it feel like a wall of fire? Does it feel like whatever? Do I'm trying to think. Um, it's gone. Okay. Well, well, wow, I really that... like. I really like what uh, you said about asking about an image, um, because I, I've found, had. Uh, I don't know, because of the way I carry myself, conduct myself as a therapist, my my clients respond really well whenever I'm using metaphors. Mm -hmm. And whenever I can talk about asking them for an image of what something feels like or running with some metaphor that they've used, I feel like shared metaphor is really strong in in building the therapeutic relationship at least in my experience that's been oh yeah that is really useful oh um, yeah so i really liked what you were saying about that as as a door i think it i think it's so true and i i've i mean eft definitely encourages it and i find it super helpful with the couples therapy you know if you have a really shut down withdrawer someone who really does not verbalize their internal experience to anyone um, barely verbalizes it to themselves inside their own head um, you know to ask them to all of a sudden wax poetic about all the things that happen is just a lot and then they have the pressure of two people looking at them in the room and so if we can harness onto an image it can just be incredible with how it yeah. breaks everything open yeah, and it almost kind of gives a, like, shorthand for me to bring things back up again later yeah. on with the client and immediately, like, we 
basically like created our own little like shared language. Oh, I I think you said that so nicely. Yeah, that's so true. I wanted to, um, Ryan, did you want to? No, that was, that was all. No. I wanted to go back to something you were saying about, um, it's about helping them to tolerate the emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that another a friend of mine who's a EFT supervisor has said, and it feels strange to hear that said, because I think I assume that with the attachment lens, the part of the goal is to meet the emotion, you know? Help me understand that. Meet the emotion? Yeah. So, um, you know, if, if, if there's this core loneliness, mm-hmm. then part of what you want is that to be met by um, nurturing, right? In mm-hmm. a sense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but what you and what she said is that part of is that part of what you guys are looking for is the ability to tolerate the emotion. So if it, so, if there's this core loneliness, can we sit with, sit with that mm-hmm. longer than um, you usually do? Yeah. I think I know what you're saying. Um, can I go for a little bit and you tell yeah. me if I'm getting it right? Um, so, yeah, I think the ideal, I mean, picture perfect scenario is for someone to be able to own like, hey, in this moment, like I'm feeling really lonely. What what I need from you is, you know, a hug or to be told that you're there for me. And then for them to, their partner to come in with that soothing, for them to accept the soothing and then feel um, like, you know, they got what they needed. Is that kind of what you're saying by me? Yeah. And I think with clients, um, you know, who've had trauma or neglect or just parents who didn't know how to talk about emotions at all, um, to simply have the emotion is so painful that um, they don't like, they can't even get it met because they can't stay with it. And so that's where you see people um, shoot off into other things. So they might go get drunk or they might watch porn or they might cut or they might um, go for a really long run or whatever. They have always, they, they've found a way to cope right? That like when this feeling comes up, it's too bad to have in my body. So I do this other thing. And so for someone who's struggling like that, the, you know, to even have them be okay with it being in their body. I mean, that can take a very long time. I'm talking years, you know, Mm -hmm. for them to be okay with that in their body because it has never been okay before. Mm -hmm. We're asking them to imagine a world they have never been in. Right. Wow. And to trust us that it's going to be okay there, right? Mm -hmm. Because their system's like, no, like this is a horrible idea. And so when we're like, no, it's fine to feel that. And they're like, no, it's not fine to feel that. Right. So as you say that, I think for me, it really opens up a a really clearer sequence, right? Because people come in um, with a presenting problem, right? Usually some sort of secondary emotion. Um, mm-hmm. And the way that I understand secondary emotion, a secondary emotion is a feeling that comes after a first feeling that is usually directed towards someone else to get you out of that first feeling, right? Um, so uh, a common sort of way is like, you know, anger comes to get you out of feeling, you know, um, shame or loneliness or whatever. 
Right. Um, I, I don't. I don't know if people know that they feel the first one, though. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, which is part of why you have to slow it down, right? Right. Right. And I think that part of what George talks about, which is so brilliant, is you have to um, stay with the first, stay with the secondary emotion, stay with the secondary anger, mm-hmm. and validate that until the person drops into a prime, a primary emotion, mm-hmm. which is usually about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can get to you know whatever that need is, right? Mm-hmm. So it, I think as you're talking about this, it's really showing me how slow that process might be. Right to, uh, yeah. to stick with and validate anger, so the person can can then soften and then drop into loneliness, mm-hmm. right, and then be okay with being in that place, so mm-hmm. that they then can talk about that underlying need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just think it depends on the person, but certainly, the more trauma, the more time. That's for sure. Yeah, and I think, and tell me if this is off, but. I think that for students and even for myself, knowing that that's sort of how things go, you can, I can jump to wanting to meet the need immediately. When we haven't dealt with the anger, right. Right. Right, what George talks so wonderfully about, right. and then we haven't really sat in the sadness to then get to, for them long enough for it to be okay, or safe enough for them to be in that place. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think this is just like part of the art of therapy that I will be learning for the rest of my life, which is, you know, how long do you want them to sit in the feeling? How long before you thread in the attachment? You know, how long before you try to take them out of it? Certainly people can, you know, if you think about that window of tolerance of like you're too, um, upregulated or cognitive to be doing the work you're too flooded to be doing the work like we certainly can't we don't want the clients to get we don't want to stay in it so long that they get flooded and start to have to dissociate like so that's part of that art right of feeling every minute of like what you're what they need in that moment yeah so we got about 10 minutes left um Mm -hmm. and i have one more question for you but before i do that ryan Do you have anything else you want to? Um, I think that something we kind of glossed over earlier that I've been thinking about uh, that I'd be interested to hear your thoughts is supervision. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think that I think that in developing as a therapist, mentor mentee relationships are really important for us. Mm-hmm. Um, being on both sides of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm noticing that the longer and longer you keep going in therapy, the more and more difficult it gets to have those relationships mm-hmm. because your, your supervisors inevitably become, for me, in a community mental health setting, it becomes more about programmatic stuff. Mm-hmm. So, uh, mm-hmm. and less about therapy, more about programmatic stuff, or it becomes uh, more and more disconnected because I meet with a supervisor that maybe isn't at the same office as me, doesn't necessarily have as good a sense of how I work, mm-hmm. um, stuff like that. So I'm curious, like, what have you 
what's your approach to that been mm -hmm. uh, since you brought that up earlier? Yeah, I'm really hardcore about this topic. <laughs> so, um, prepare. so we should have not left it for the last. <laughs> oh no, prepare, prepare for the blast. But I, I would say like, I like fervently believe that to be good and to, to not burn out, um, we need active supervision. So mm -hmm. I pay private supervisors um, and I usually have two or three so that they're building that relationship and they do know me um, and who I see either once a week or every two weeks. It's expensive. You know, it takes a lot of time, but I don't, I don't know how to do this work without that. And I, I seek out, like I interview these people, like I seek out people who I think are the best at what they do. Um, I seek out people that blow my mind and then I pay them and I listen to what they say and I show them my tapes, which is crappy and feels yeah. like crap every single time. Um, but so you still video sessions. Oh yeah. I'll wow. video sessions forever. Like yeah. this, it sucks, but like there, there's no other way. Otherwise I only have myself checking mm -hmm. to see yeah. how I'm doing. Right. And, and in that kind of a vacuum, you have no clue after a while, you just have no clue what kind of therapist you are. If that's all you're going off of. So, and like, honestly, like it's such a relief to go into my therapist's office and, or my supervisor. And I think that's a accurate Freudian slip because yeah, I, yeah. It's therapeutic, right? Like I'll go in and just cry about how bad I messed up or, you know, about how hard it is not to be getting through to these, this one client or whatever. And, um, yeah, I, I love supervision. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a big supporter. <laughs> yeah. And, and I want, I mean, for the students listening, like you, like you also need to know how good you are. If you're working with someone and you're like not get, feeling it and you're not getting what you need, they might not be good enough for you. Like push for it, fight harder, find someone who's better. You know, they're totally out there. There's a million of them. Yeah. I love it. That sounds great. I'm yeah. inspired now. <laughs> I'm sure you can hear it in my voice. <laughs> Way to say that. Um, I mean, my my last question was going to be, what's your what's your thing? You know, I think we all have something that we're like, people need to know this, and I think you might have just hit on it. Simulation <laughs> was definitely one of them for you. Oh man, Jordan, I feel like I have so many of those things. Do you mean like for, like? as a therapist, like as a person, like a message for the world, like. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess keep it a little bit, you know, contextual because we have students here in our master's program, but you can talk about yeah. anything. You got five minutes, so just ramble. I, I really, um, I believe in doing a lot of work on yourself as a therapist. Um, so, you know, for the the students listening, you know, who you are in the room, like, I had a professor once say, we intervene with ourselves, right? So it's not, it's not really so much about the interventions you're using, if, you know, it's so much about who we are in that moment. And I think it's really important to know, like, where we get triggered, where our biases are, you know, what, how we're walking into the room, you know, how do you feel about these different populations. Um, you know, I'm white. 
I have to be able to talk about white privilege. I have to be able to understand when a client might have assumptions about me or I'm making assumptions about them. If I have a couple that's polyamorous, I have to look at, you know, do I have biases about that? Do I, you know, need to do any of my own work around that? Um, so I think the if, if we walk in assuming that we don't have those things because we're therapists, we can really hurt clients. So I think we have to be really humble and really honest with ourselves. And it's not about being perfect. It's about making sure that we're on top of our work, you know, so that our own personal work. So we're aware of that stuff. Well, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, so this is going to be um, up on SoundCloud. Okay. And I'll make sure that you get a link. Okay, great. That's everything I have for you. Okay. I'm coming on, and I know it's a little late for you. <laughs> but thanks thanks for coming on and talking to yeah. students. Oh, yeah. yeah. Do you, uh, you want to, like, put in a little plug for your blog? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. It's um, becomingatherapist.org. And um, it will probably be most beneficial for people interested in couples therapy. But I do have some posts that are just about normal therapy. Okay. Cool. Uh, okay. Thank you guys so much. It's been such a pleasure talking to you yeah. both. And um, thanks so much for wanting to have me on. Yeah. Yeah. Great talk. Yeah. And Jordan, congratulations on the new baby. Thanks. thanks. <laughs> yeah. I'm excited and terrified. So <laughs> thank you. <very> <laughs> All right, guys.